January 20th, 1976. Today's heroes, tomorrow's bombs, just the way it is. 
You know, I, I, one thing I'd like to send out to you tonight uh, is this uh, encouraging message. Since everybody around you has agreed that you're, you know, kind of dumb and you make these bad, dumb decisions, you could be heroic in the view of history. Now, that's not going to do you much good right now. It ain't going to put no numbers in your book down at the old Irving Trust, is it? But uh, somewhere, someplace, it's like, it's like did you, you know, the, uh, one of my friends is a cartoonist, uh, Galen Wilson, you know Galen? Good cartoonist, good guy, good friend. <laughs> and uh, he's, uh, he's a listener type, too, you know. And, and so Galen did this great cartoon the other day. You might have seen it. It was in Playboy. It's a cartoon. And a uh, big full-page cartoon. And uh, you see these guys standing around, and uh, they're wearing long white robes. And uh, they've got these cheesy-looking halos on their head. You know, there's a stick coming off their neck, and there's this little bent-looking halo above them, and they've got these crummy little cardboard wings. And it just kind of, you know, you, you look around, you see around them, around their feet, you see beer cans and cigar butts and, you know, rubble in the corner, you know, litter all over the place. And there's a fence around them, a big high fence. And you can see these these uh, letters over the fence telling where you are. And the letters are kind of battered, and one of them has fallen over, and somebody's left a beer can sitting where they stole a letter. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and the sign says, Heaven. And one guy said to the other guy, they're both, they're all standing, looking real bored. One guy said, I'm standing there looking out over the clouds. And uh, he's, he's got on this, this robe, it's kind of tattered, and it's got a patch on it. And one guy said, he says, you know, frankly, I, 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 I thought it would be a little classier than it is. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I'll tell you a funny little story if you want to call it funny. One day, I'm uh, I'm working at this this television and radio station. See, this was a few years back, and I'm working as a TV station, you know, a very rich television station. And uh, I mean, they really had it. Oh man, I tell you, they had they had they were running commercials simultaneously. Have you ever seen a station with so many commercials that they had to run both film chains at the same time and superimpose them? Oh yeah, you were seeing the lady plumber. At the same time, the Preparation H guy was talking. They both came on the screen at the same time. They didn't have enough time, you know. They were. <laughs> That's not a bad idea, is it? Well, uh, they're both in the same business, really, basically. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, I, uh, I I was working at this station, the young uh, idealistic type. You, you, when you're there's a certain point in your life when lessons really really score, you know, really score. And uh, there's a certain period in your life when, believe me. No lesson ever changes a guy, and that's sad. That's that's not all everybody, but it's the, the vast majority. So I'm sitting in this radio station one day, and before speaking of commercials, before we go any further, <laughs> I told you. Well, <laughs> well, I, I warned you, didn't I? What do you want? You want me to come out there and hold your hand, huh? Well, maybe I'll do that. It depends on who you are, you know. But uh, oh yes, yes. But uh, nevertheless, uh, you want to hear the story about this guy. Uh, tragic figure, tragic figure, tragic figure. I wish I had some tragic figure. Would you hold up my records, sir? My uh, background music, my mood music, please. Mr. Lambert, please. Yes, there is a tragic. Can you, can you cut one side one? Cut one side one. You don't have to cue it up. Just let it go. Because this, this is right. This is right. Ah, oh, yes, friends, tonight. 
we take this auspicious occasion to salute the tragic moment. A tragic moment in a man's life. Of which, of course, I must admit, all of us have had in our lives of varying degrees, like the time I locked the keys in my car when I had this fantastic day. It looked like it was going great, and I locked the damn keys in the car, and I didn't get them open for seven and a half hours later, and she was already home by three hours, took a cab. Never, never talked to me again. Just at the moment when everything was going just swimmingly, as uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald would say. But that, nevertheless, tragedy lurks behind every door. Tragedy lurks in every closet. Yes, the cold winds of defeat come drifting out over the great north woods of time. And as we go scurrying like mad rabbits, like insane mice, as we go scurrying through the labyrinthine passages, the maze of existence, looking here and there, darting in and out, always coming up against the cul-de-sac, looking for the eternal great vast slice of rat cheese of life, the eternal reward. God knows, and only he alone can tell us whether there even is a reward. And so tonight, friends, as we look deep into your tragic night, we realize that there is no turning. We are one with the other, wringing our hands through all time. la tee 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 Well, that's the way life is. One. Beautiful. Thank you. That's very good. That's all we need. That was just beautifully done. And just so right, so apropos. As I described it, you can... No, you don't need that. No. Well, how it happened, I'll tell you the story. Is it, uh, is it, is it time for me to tell it? I don't know whether I should tell you the story because it's maybe a little early in the evening to hear a story of true tragedy. I mean, it's... <laughs> you know, it's funny to me. You, you go see tragedies, you know, the so-called tragedies on Broadway and on television. I never read the kind of things that happen to people in life. I mean, who the hell cares whether a Danish prince uh, gets back at his uncle? You know, the, the king, you know that old, you know that one with the skull and all that, you know? I mean, it may be written beautifully, but it really doesn't get right down to the marrow of your bones. Not having, you know, known many Danish princes of that period anyway, uh, who had an uncle that made the scene with, uh, you know, the queen. Yeah, all that stuff, you know. Oh, yes. Oh, what boots this cruise that I carry? Spake Electra, as she stood upon the parapet staring out over the wine-blood-red Aegean Sea. Oh, brother, oh, brother, upon... Some far shore return and undo this woeful wrong to me. What boots this cruise that I carry? You didn't know that I knew, did you? Very few of you knew that I that I uh, I speak uh, I speak pure Euripides. That infinitely was Euripides. That was hardly Arthur Miller. You didn't know about. You don't know what a cruise is. You think a cruise is something you take on a boat, huh? What boots this cruise that I carry? You think boots refer to something you get at Tom McCann? Well, I have to translate Euripides for you there. Because that is English, translated from the original Greek. What boots this cruise that I carry? A cruise is a jar, a water jar. 
Now, Electra in the scene was coming up from a well where she was bringing water as a plain servant. She had this servant's dress on. She was an old, tattered, black dress, like a slave in that time. It would be a slave, really. And she's bringing this water jug, and she's got it on her shoulder as the scene opens in uh, this Euripidean drama. And uh, she looks out, and the drama, of course, is called Electra. It's nothing to do with Con Ed. Uh, she, 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 well, only peripherally. You know, the term electricity derives from Electra. Did you know that? Oh. Hey, George, this is a culture hour. Yes, uh, <laughs> it is. The term electricity derives from Electra, a mysterious force, malevolent and yet beautiful. That's electricity. If you ever stick your finger in them two little slots, you'll find out what it can do. I mean, it can make your teeth light up. The old fillings of the little Dixie right out of your head. On the other hand, it can make the poster work, and out comes the uh, Thomas English muffin. Nicely toasted, right? Electra. Mysterious figure. Uh, she, she was something else. Uh, anybody that's got a Buick named Electra, you know, I'd be careful. Electra. <laughs> could turn on you like a snake. But uh, nevertheless... Yeah, yeah, that reminds me. This is W.O.R. New York. I mean, George, it can turn on you like a snake, too, if you don't watch it. But uh, I don't want to bring intramural squabbling into the situation here. But nevertheless, I would like to point out, though, that, uh, that as Electra stands and looks out into the darkening dusk out over that mysterious sea, and she stands on this barren hillside, and she looks with... with, with smoldering eyes, smoldering with hatred. Hatred? Oh, yes. Hatred and uh, various other mixed emotions which come out in the second act. We will not, uh, I don't want to tip the gaff to you, but nevertheless, she stands there and looks out over the sea and she says, Oh, brother, upon some far shore, what boots this cruise that I carry? Now, we have to explain that to you. What boots this cruise that I carry? That did not mean somebody was kicking field goals with a water jug, uh, which probably uh, would seem to you. What boots this? Is this an early term, English phrase, uh, used to be used by poetic translators, which means roughly, what does it mean? What's the meaning of? What, what, why? What boots? What boots this cruise that I carry? In other words, why? What, what does this mean? Why am I carrying a water jug? very symbolic statement, meaning, why am I carrying, why am I a servant? Only servants carried water jugs in their time, slaves, literally. Why am I carrying a, a water jug like this? Well, you must know who Electra was. Electra was a princess. So that's a good question to ask. I mean, you know, if you saw Princess Anne uh, carrying out the garbage behind the chocolate of nuts, uh, she would have a right, it would be right for her to hold this garbage can up. What boots this can of garbage that I carry? Oh, brother, on some far shore, why don't you do something about it? That's what she's saying. What boots this cruise that I carry? Oh, brother, on some far shore, undo the cruel gross injustice done to me and thy kin throughout the years of yore. What does this mean? Oh, well, that's what the play's about. And I'll tell you, it turns into one heck of a hassle. That's all I got to say. Now, her brother is named Orestes. Don't confuse that with something they do at the 6th Precinct. 
Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, sorry. Oh, good heavens. But uh, that, that was just unconscionable. I'm sorry. But uh, when, when, when Orestes comes back, he comes back from, from uh, far wars. He's a prince, remember. He comes back from these far wars where he's been fighting, as they always did in those days. You know, they just go out and have a war. You know, just like we have hockey games and stuff. And he, they did. Uh, war was a great sport in those days. So he's, he's out there battling the Saracens or something. And he comes back, and she gets him by the ear. And she says, in effect, Brother, what boots these cruises that I carry? How come I'm carrying water jugs? And what's going on up there in the palace? I'll tell you what's going on up there. There are phonies everywhere. And they have kicked me out. Well, the next thing you know, she, what she's doing, she's fomenting revolution. And in the final act, it happens, and the, the palaces tumble, and the kings are yelling and hollering, and swimming in the water, and the boats are sinking. Well, she was an early Iago. Now, you want me to tell you about Iago? Well, there's an Iago in every office. Classical character. Don't you know who Iago is? Iago is that uh, little short kind of friendly guy who uh, who uh, never makes anybody mad and everybody kind of likes. But once in a while, he comes in and sits down with the boss. See? Just, uh, you know, casual conversation. says, gee, you know, it's, uh, it's uh, too bad about uh, Charlie. And at that point, the boss says, Charlie, what happened to Charlie? At which point, Iago, Iago of uh, the office, says, oh, you didn't know? Well, then, I didn't say anything. <laughs> no, 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 I don't want to say anything. He's an old friend of mine. I won't say anything about Charlie. He says, well, what, 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 what did he do? What, 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 what's Charlie been up to? Oh, no, no, no. I don't want to be the one to say anything. And then he leaves. Forget it. Charlie's got about ten days. That's Iago. You know about Iago, don't you? We've all known Iago? Correct. Well, we've all known Electra, too. Now, uh, we've all known Oedipus, one way or another. Oh, sure. Uh, you've known people who uh, can't, uh, uh, can't take a trip to the mountains over the weekend without calling up mother. Oedipus. <laughs> Not necessarily a full-blown case of, of uh, the problem that, that cursed Oedipus. You know, who Oedipus was? Well, because you know who he was. I don't have to uh, hammer it down. Right now. Oedipus is not a thing that the Greeks eat that has uh, big, long eight feelers on it that they catch out of the sea. That's an octopus. This is an Oedipus. Oedipus. I could think of four other terrible puns <laughs> deal with Oedipus. But uh, nevertheless, uh, Oedipus and Electra are often... Uh, are often the parallel because uh, the Electra complex is less known in America than the Oedipal complex. The Oedipal complex is a, is a hang-up on the mother, but the Electra complex is a hang-up on daddy, which is often found among ladies. Uh, just like uh, the Oedipal complex is generally a male problem, correct, Timo? Oh, yeah, so we don't want to get into Electra, heaven's sakes. Have you ever wondered yourself why some unbelievable chick who's a uh, 22 years old, has all the money in the world, fantastic girl, will marry this old rhinoceros? Ah, uh, you've wondered, haven't you? Well, if you knew something about Electra, you wouldn't wonder. <laughs> Electra. Yes, oh, what boots this guy? How did I get on this? What, what happened here? This is simply not the kind of stuff you hear Victor Borg talking about. I wonder if you ever heard of it. 
Ah, yes, what boots this cruise that I carry? Oh, you want to hear about the classical kit? Oh, you thought I lost it. Well, I'll tell you. All of this was mixed up. I'm sitting in the radio station one day, and uh, I think uh, we want to set the mood. Can we play that same cut, first cut? But set the mood, I see. Uh, to establish the drama, the theater of life. The curtain now goes up. And as the curtain rises, we see on stage left a young, budding television and radio performer who at this point is extremely, almost painfully innocent. He's sitting there with a gummy look on his face, looking at today's log. And at that moment, as the stage is established, the studio door opens and in totters a bent, tragic figure. A man who obviously has a great weight of worry and defeat hanging over him. He says hello in a cracked voice, redolent with defeat, to the young man sitting there in the studio. Oh. At which point, Another man, a tall, thin, dynamic-looking man, whispers something into our young hero's ear. Well, you don't know what it is. But we know that that whispering has to do with the elderly, defeated gentleman. They both leave quickly, as though the man has leprosy. And now the stage is left alone, forlorn, empty, except for the bent figure of the tragic man. Friendless alone. There is but one place for him to go, and that is out into the storm, which is roaring just outside the studio. It's always roaring just outside the studio when it ain't roaring in the studio, which is a good part of the time. The curtain comes down, and the audience has seen a mysterious drama of Samuel Beckett dimension. Not bad, was it? <laughs> You think there's no point to it? Well, there was a hell of a point. I am sitting in the studio. I don't want to know what actually happened. I'm sitting in the studio one day saying, remember, this is a television station. These guys have got money coming out of the air conditioning units. In fact, they even took a lot of their, 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 their spare $100 bills and had them woven into a carpet for Studio 3. You know, that kind of a place. Oh, yeah, the, the, uh, the office boys were taking cruises in the Bahamas with their Christmas bonus. You know, that kind of stuff. They had commercials coming out of the air every place. They didn't have time for shows. They did away with all the shows, none of the commercials. People watched them, loved them. And so they had the world by the you-know-what, right? So I'm sitting in the studio in there at this great place, and, and this is exactly what happened on, on this day. I walked out of the studio, and there's this guy sitting out there, and he's talking to people. I know he's out there in the ante room. You need to come into the studio, you know, or the offices where the official people, a couple of guys are saying, oh, uh, hi, George, and they'd walk on. Hi, George, and they'd walk on. And uh, at that point, uh, I, I said to my friend, who was a young engineer, I said, to him, I said hey, who is this guy? And I'll tell you at lunch. And at that point, he sort of said in a very sheepish voice, uh, hi, George, how you doing? And George says, oh, well, I'll make out. I'm doing all right. But he had the look in the eye of a Willie Loman. He had the look in the eye of a guy who was not doing all right and who would never, ever again do all right. And we went to lunch. And I found out about George. 
You know what happened? It sounds almost unbelievable. You can't believe it, probably listening to me. Now, you say, well, come on, he's making the story up. This actually happened. I could. <laughs> I will supply name, date, a television station upon request. If you can prove you're over 21 and a guaranteed art lover, I can, uh, <laughs> yes, they'll be sent to him in, in plain brown wrapper, but this happened. We go out to lunch, and we're sitting there in the purple cow. And I says, come on, what's the story about this guy? Boy, they were treating that guy like he, you know, like he was a guy carrying typhus fever or something, you know, leprosy or something. He says, boy, he says, that's some story. I said, well, come on, tell me. He said, well, I, I don't know. See, he looks around to make sure nobody else was listening because this was such a hot story you didn't even talk about. It. You know, he looks around. And uh, I says, there's nobody in here. And he says, okay. He says, I'll tell you what the story is. He said, did you know that he used to be chief engineer of the station? I said, chief engineer? You know, if you don't know this, friends, the chief engineer of any television or radio station is a fairly important man. In fact, very important, wouldn't you say, Al? Yeah, he keeps the thing on the air. That's kind of important. Without him, uh, we got nothing but a lot of wires and a couple of pieces of copper sticking in the ground, you know. <laughs> so he keeps it on the air, see? So... I said, he was chief engineer? He says, yep, there was a time when George was chief engineer. I said, well, what happened? He said, he wasn't that old. He didn't look like, uh, you know, he was retired or anything like that. He says, boy, you wouldn't believe it. He says, even I today don't believe it. I said, well, come on. Tell me, Bob, what happened? You know, I'm not going to say anything. And he says, no, I'm not saying anything. He said, everybody knows it. These people who were here for, you know, for a time and knew what happened with it at the time. He said, everybody knows. There's no secret. He said, except nobody wants to talk about it. That is the worst kind of secret. <laughs> a secret that nobody wants to talk about. And I said, oh, come on. you got to tell me what it is. What happened? He says, well, he says, I'll tell you now. He says, uh, you won't believe it. He says, but it is a fact. And he says, and if you ever get a chance to talk to him outside of the station sometime, ask him about it, he'll tell you. I said, well, I may just do that, so tell me what happened. He says, well, George was the chief engineer here, and he's a good one, very good chief engineer. He says, one of the best I ever worked for, you know. He's, he's got the degrees in engineering, and he's got a, you know, he's got all the first phone tickets, and he had a lot of experience, and he practically built the transmitter single-handedly with his own soldering iron. You know, he's really a good man. And he said, uh, he made a big mistake one day, fantastic mistake. I said, well, what did he do? He said, well, he went to an NAB convention. Now, for those of you who don't know about this, that's the National Association of Broadcasters. That's like the convention, you know, that the broadcasters go to. Uh, generally not talent. Uh, it's usually uh, engineers, uh, salesmen, uh, managers. In other words, the business end of radio or television. And they have these annual conventions. And at the conventions, they have... This great big floor full of booths. They show equipment. They show new uh, new kinds of turntables. And they show new kinds of cameras. And they demonstrate uh, all sorts of uh, color. You, you've seen these things. It's a fantastic big thing. See. Well, now, I might point out, this was some time ago when this happened. So you've got to put it in the time. A hero, this is the point of the story. A hero often is a hero because of the time he lives in. But had he done the same thing that he did that made him a hero, in a later time, he could very well be put up against the wall and shot. 
vice versa. <laughs> you can be a bum one day for the very thing that if you pulled it off two years later, you would have been a hero. Well, this is what happened to George. I said, uh, well, all right, so we went to an NAB convention. What's wrong with that? He said, well, it's a funny thing. He said, you know, Bob Adams? And I said, I do know Bob Adams. He said, well, Bob went with him. Bob is another engineer. He says, Bob went with him, and Bob was a witness to all of this. And I said, well, what actually happened? He says, well, we went. he went to the convention, and they, they, they got uh, installed in this uh, hotel. They were staying in the same hotel where the convention was being held. And he says they got on the elevator, and they went down, and they started to look at the exhibits. You know, they had various speeches going on on the various clinics about the uh, technical things, and they were walking around and picking up brochures and stuff, and it was a three-day convention. And he said the first day they walked around, they attended a couple of things, and they met a lot of guys and stuff. And the second day, they, uh, they did pretty much the same, and they were getting deeply involved. But the third day, they had done all of their business, and they were just sort of just fooling around, you know, looking at strange things like, uh, you know, looking at the, a new style of uh, umbrella-shaped antenna, you know, like, just for kicks. Eh? And he says, we're walking along, Bob and, and uh, George, not we, Bob and George are walking along, when all of a sudden they come upon this booth. And the booth is being operated by the FCC. Well, you know who that is, the Federal Communications Commission, at which point... George walks over, and he, he knows some guy at the FCC, and he says, oh, how are you, Howie? And Howie says, how are you, George? They both knew each other from someplace in the past, at which point uh, George says, well, what are you guys doing here? What are you doing? He says, uh, I'd like to, you know, what, what, why is the FCC on the roof? And at that point, this is when it happened. The guy at the FCC says, well, he says, you know, we decided we'd like to try to promote uh, radio stations at that time, there were only radio stations when this happened with George. We'd like to promote uh, with radio stations, big-time radio stations, to put in an application for an FM outlet. They're trying to promote FM. At that time, FM was very little used. And what we'd like to do, we'd like to promote people putting in for a, a television uh, a channel. At that time, very few stations. Ch uh, television was kind of experimental, you know. And, and at that point, George says, oh, that's interesting. He said, so you, you just, he said what, do you have to, what do you have to do? He said, well, here, you can fill out these forms here. He said, you're chief engineer. You can fill out the forms. And so uh, he went down uh, to his room, and he's fooling around. And uh, just for kicks, he filled out the forms. You hear what I'm saying? Now, that sounds like a strange story. It actually happened. He filled out these forms and uh, gave them to his friend. They went back home. Six months went by, and one day, the station gets a very official document, letter, communication from the FCC saying that their application for a television channel has been not only approved, but uh, uh, all they need now is to fill in a few extra forms and that they, they could be on the air within uh, three months. <laughs> they have got a television channel. Well... The manager, the owner of the station, saw this. He didn't even know this had happened. He flipped. 
He says, what do you mean? Television is not going to be, television is not going to be successful till the year 2000. What are you trying to do to me? And at that point, George comes in and he says, well, gee, I, I didn't know that, you know, I just, uh, I, I wasn't aware that they would uh, operate it out of that quickly. And I, I, I just did it. To, why don't we just tell them we don't want it? He says, what are you, uh, you mean to tell me I'm going to make myself look like a damn fool in front of the FCC? I'm going to tell them we applied for this channel and then we don't want it? We're going to call them up and say we were just kidding? Are you kidding? What are you talking about, George? <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry, Chief. I, 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 I didn't, didn't think. And after all, he said, do you realize what they told me? They said that if I do not have that television station on the air within 60 days, that they were going to cancel the application. And furthermore, if I let it go, I would not be considered for another application. We'll never get a television station unless we do this. And I don't want television. Television is not going to be popular until the year 2000. In fact, I have a poll right here that says that television is not going to be commercially feasible until the year 2010. We will be dead already 30 years. What are you talking about? I do not want this, but what am I going to do? And at that point, he flew off the handle and got so mad, George went skulking down to his office. He rang his brother and said, George, I cannot have a man like you working for me. You have put me, you're going to make me bankrupt. Get out of here. You're fired. Now, this sounds like an insane story. It was true. George was fired for getting a television channel for this radio station, which was a little bitty, itty station at the time. They got the channel, and they put the damn thing on the air with another engineer because they had to do it. They didn't know what to do. They went out and bought themselves one film chain, one little transmitter that you built with a, with a soldering iron and a heath kit, and they got it on on this channel out in Cincinnati, and overnight... It was the biggest gold mine since the strike in the Klondike. That station, which at one time you could have bought for the price of maybe five or six uh, fairly decent lead paperweights and uh, a used car, is now worth something like $22 million. If you tried to buy it. You can see why they don't talk about George. They never mention George, except once in a while when the guys are sitting around and they get into their cups over at the Purple Cow and they start reminiscing. Somebody talks about that fantastic day that George dropped by the FCC booth at the NAB. Do you know how hard it is today, friends, to get a television channel? That's right. You might as well try to get elected Pope. You'd probably do just as well. Maybe you'd like to pitch for the Mets. Why don't you go apply? Probably just as have just as much uh, chance to get that uh, fourth starting spot right after Kuzman. And so it doesn't matter if you can throw or not. That's how much chance you got. And somewhere out in the darkness to this very day, George, the man who did it, has taken up his hobby. Never did get a decent job after that. Once you're fired, you know, it's not easy to do. And you can't explain that kind of thing. I was fired because I got a television. Who's going to believe that? I was fired because I got a TV channel for the station. You know, they made $20 million for the head of your rhythm. Who's going to believe that? After the true saga. That's like if Willie Loman had gone to Boston and got the order. And more than that, they ordered 17 million pairs of shoes. And he was fired because the factory couldn't make that many. They were looking at sales and doing that kind of stuff. There was. 